And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Day's Daredevil Podcast, the show about Marvel Comics man without fear Daredevil as well as his enemies and allies. A proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave and admit it. You didn't really notice this episode was late because you're more used to the show not being around than actually being around, and that's on me, squarely. And to that, there is a reason, at least an origin to that, a few pieces of that. Uh, but from here on, I'm going to be making this show a priority again. Now, there is a sacrifice to be made for bringing the show back permanently rather than doing the farewell tour for a while, and I don't know how long, but for the foreseeable future at least, the show will be bi-weekly. So Dave's Daredevil Podcast returns every other Sunday. My hope is to genuinely get back into a groove sooner rather than later, and maybe get the show back as a weekly podcast, but we'll make do with bi-weekly for now. And for those that wonder, just to make it official, this will mean I'll be foregoing the Dave K. Batman podcast and the Sensational Adventures of Wonder Woman, at least as some sort of regular concern, but I'll be returning home to this show permanently. And I'll admit, I've been all over the map for the last, what, year or so, maybe more? And the show has suffered tremendously because I wanted to try new things, I guess. And mainly because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I wanted to go. And the origin of that is, well, nobody can intimidate me like I can. There was a time where I just kept making all the wrong calls with this show. Time management problems, being indecisive about what I wanted to cover, getting frustrated with sound quality, compound that with some dental issues that ate up some of my podcast time, about with pneumonia, some technological issues. Basically, the show felt damaged because I couldn't get it out, and I felt like I'd failed. Now, I'm not here to whine. I'm just here to tell you that was the origin point. I'm past that now. I've tried out doing other shows because I thought I could recapture the magic of this show, but no show has ever felt quite like home the way Dave's Daredevil podcast has. The best way to really describe my thoughts come from one of my favorite films, High Fidelity. There's a scene towards the end that, you know, it's easier to just play it for you, but to set it up, essentially the main character, Rob Gordon, realizes why his relationship is important, why it works. Take a listen. Well, um, are you going to talk to me or shall I get my paper out? No, no, I'm going to talk to you. Right. What are you going to talk to me about? Um, I'm going to talk to you about whether or not you want to get married to me. <laughs> I, I'm serious. Yes, I know. Thanks a bunch. <laughs> I'm sorry. Two days ago, you were making tapes for that girl from the reader. Yeah. Well, forgive me if I don't think of you as the world's safest bed. Would you marry me if I was? <laughs> What brought all this on? I don't know. I'm just sick of thinking about it all the time. About what? This stuff. Love and settling down and marriage, you know. I want to think about something else. I changed my mind. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. I do. I will. Just shut up, please. I'm just trying to explain, okay? That other girl or other women, whatever. I mean, I was thinking that... They're just fantasies, you know? And they always seem really great because there's never any problems. And if there are, they're cute problems, like 
you know, we bought each other the same Christmas present, or she wants to go see a movie that I've already seen, you know? And then I come home, and you and I have real problems, and you don't even want to see the movie I want to see, period. And there's no lingerie, and... I have lingerie. Well, yes, you do. You have great lingerie, but you also have the cotton underwear that's been washed a thousand times, and it's hanging on the thing, and... And they have it, too. It's just I don't have to see it because it's not the fantasy. Do you understand? I'm tired of the fantasy because it doesn't really exist. And there are never really any surprises, and it never really... Delivers? Delivers. Right. And I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of everything else, for that matter. But I don't ever seem to get tired of you. I think I know what you mean. But were you really expecting me to say yes? I don't know. I didn't think about it really. I thought asking was the important part. Well, you've asked. Thank you. So there it is. The other shows never really delivered the way this one has, so I'm home, and I'm here to stay at Demonzacorp. So with that, why don't we get back to a podcast promo break, and we'll come back to the debut of Typhoid Mary. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step, Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com.
Welcome back to the show. Now, to set up this week's issue, to give you some context, we're going to be looking at a post-born-again story, which means Matt was disbarred, Karen's return, recovering from being a junkie, and you kind of had this blue-collar period of Daredevil, which Anna Sinti brought to the table. Now, we have Matt kind of working some regular jobs, but he's advising lawyers, especially on this very big case. So he and Foggy are kind of at odds. He's advising other lawyers. He's living in Hell's Kitchen, this apartment with Karen, and she's, you know, getting better. Daredevil's also working as Matt Murdock with Tyrone, a kid who was blinded by toxic waste one of Kingpin's company's toxic waste. And this is the big case that Matt is advising on. And he's basically trying to bring Kingpin to justice. And it's, of course, through many, many channels that Kingpin is responsible for this, which is why Foggy is defending this company, not aware that it's Kingpin related. That really doesn't come into play too much in this episode. Tyrone is the important part. But the thing is, it's putting Matt by proxy against Foggy. And that's kind of an interesting idea that does end up playing out. It also means that Matt is in an unsafe place. And for as much as you want to say, hey, Frank Miller came in, did board again, and left Matt in a weird place, Nascenti kind of took that ball and said, how can we make this awesome? Well, the simple answer is, let's bring John Romita Jr. on board and do some really cool stories with Daredevil. Which brings us to where we're at. Daredevil number 254, the May 19. 1988 issue. We have a cover by John Romita Jr. and Al Williamson, with Daredevil standing amid raging flames looking as if he is in agony as a curly-haired, shadowy figure looks on with her face obscured in darkness. The weird thing about this cover is it feels hot. The colors, uh, even on the physical copy and also much more on the digital, they feel like they radiate heat. Imagine you're picking up a stone from a sauna, it's hot in your hand and that's the feeling this cover gives. It's an optical illusion, but it's a very good optical illusion. And Daredevil looks like he's burning burning in this and agony you feel that pain and of course we have the allegory there daredevil's in a ring of fire There's temptation all the way around. Everything is against him. He's going against Foggy. And of course, you have a devil imagery in fire. And then we have Typhoid. Typhoid Mary in shadow, very mysterious, kind of not in a good way. This is kind of a weird looking image for her. I mean, we don't want to give away everything up front because we're going to do that in the first page. But, you know, put a little bit of detail in there just to entice me. And while I'm thinking of it, the corner box, the icon box, is my jam. It's Daredevil on the side of this roof with his radar rings emanating out. It's something I remember because this would have been the era where I was really discovering Daredevil. This isn't quite, quote-unquote, my era of Daredevil, but it is the era where I was discovering the character. So the imagery here, it really does feel close to my heart, especially that icon box. To nobody's surprise, the story inside is entitled Typhoid, written by editor-turned-writer Anne Nascenti, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Williamson, lettered by Joseph Rosen, and colored by Christy Shield. And this story and several others are collected as Daredevil Typhoid Mary in the trade paperback version. There's a Daredevil epic collection called A Touch of Typhoid, and it's available individually on Marvel and Comixology for purchase or on Marvel Unlimited. And to break down the story, it goes thus. Typhoid shows up in an alley, adorned in face paint on half her face, metal shoulder pads, sharp swords in hand, and fishnet stockings on her legs. She breaks up a mugging, and with a scratch, she marks the mugger as hers as the trash piles up around New York from a garbage strike. Typhoid and her new boy toy arrive at a cracked end later and they blow everybody away. Typhoid uses pyrokinesis to set the place ablaze. Within the flames and the dead bodies of those that Typhoid calls scum, she gets aroused and has her way with her new boy toy. And when he feels uncomfortable with the dead bodies, she says, let them watch. As for Daredevil, he is on his way across the city when he stops momentarily to snag a suicide jumper with his billy club line. Matt changes to his civvies and goes to visit Tyrone, a boy who was blinded by the waste from one of Kingpin's companies. Matt tries some really, really bad, tough 
love to help Tyrone cope with his blindness, but not everybody can be trained how Stick trained Matt. Elsewhere, the Kingpin becomes aware of Typhoid since she's been tearing the underworld a new one, and Fisk wants a private meeting. As Matt and Karen drift apart due to Matt's obsession with training Tyrone, the Kingpin gets all the information available on Typhoid, or Typhoid Mary, as it turns out. Typhoid is the alternate personality of a girl named Mary, usually a sweet and demure girl, but when that switch is thrown, look out. Typhoid is violent, unstable, and her body chemistry changes when her personality is dominant, including running a raging fever. We check in on a subplot of Foggy representing the Kingpin's company that blinded Tyrone as Foggy's girlfriend realizes that Fisk owns it and keeps it to herself. Typhoid Mary arrives at Fisk Tower and she earns the Kingpin's respect and affection as Fisk earns hers, especially with the offer that he puts on the table. Kingpin will pay Typhoid Mary one million dollars to break Matt Murdock's heart and take down his relationship with Karen Page in the process. Typhoid Mary calls this child's play and the issue ends with Mary, the demure personality, arriving at the hospital to help Tyrone and Matt has a moment with her. Typhoid Mary has now landed in Daredevil's life and it will end up tearing him apart but that is a story for another time. So right out of the gate, we open the cover, and there is Typhoid Mary. And we're not shocked, but, you know, her look is very, very 80s. Like, felt 80s as soon as I popped this open. She's a very MTV-era villain. Teased hair, fishnets, boots with heels, shoulder pads, I mean, it's right there. Now, the character's been updated since then to be more contemporary, but, man, it took me a moment to get myself in the 80s mindset. And there's something very telling about some of the lines that Nascenti puts right up front with this character. For example, poison doesn't know it's poison. Typhoid Mary is a character of perceptions and viewpoints, especially being multiple personality or dissociative personality disorder as it's called now. And with Mary, it's something where it extends so far that her physical chemistry changes. To the point that when Daredevil does meet Mary and Typhoid, he can't tell the difference between the two. You have a character that's at odds with herself. You have Typhoid really disrupting and sabotaging Mary. And when you look at her in this issue, it's not so simple as to call her a villain or a hero or an anti-hero even. She's basically her own nemesis and the hero of her own story as well as the villain. And what I like most about this is Typhoid Mary represents this sort of ongoing battle of how a, a woman is supposed to act and how she wants to act. So Mary would represent the acceptable version of a female, domesticated, and I'm using air quotes when I say accepted, but she's domesticated, she's demure, she's submissive, where typhoid is everything that she's not. She is rage, she is fire, she is capability. And bear in mind, I mean, this was the 80s. This was the time of the career woman. You would see Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. You had Glenn Close, for a really ironic example, in Fatal Attraction, Career Women. And with typhoid, her themes are established right out of the gate. She's a very clearly established character. She's conflicting, yes, but she's established very, very, very clearly. You have the themes of dominance and submission, role reversals in some cases, and that's sort of the idea of being submissive and dominant within self, as well as your environment, your surroundings, the people around you. And Nascenti puts this in the first page. She finds this mugger named Rip, of all things, caught in the act, and she scratches his face and says, I've branded you mine. This woman is dominant, making him the submissive, and, and it's mentioned later. Rip does some pushing back, saying, why are you treating me like a man treats a woman? So Rip is very well aware that he is being dominated in a big, big way. And that's just a heck of an entrance right out of the gate. And Nascenti's themes are not subtle, but they, they are good themes. And they're well presented, at least. 
because you have the trash strike going on and trash is just piling up all over the streets of New York. So the grime of the streets now reflects the corruption that the kingpin is, is putting into the city. Not subtle, but clear and acceptable. Doesn't take much to go, oh, I see what you did there, but I like it. And Nascenti's very divisive to fandom. Some people love this run. They they swear by it and praise it. Others deride it and absolutely hate it. I've heard very few people put the run in, in like a middle category. For me, I think it has more highs and lows. It has very, very good, very high crests and not very low valleys. It is very segmented. It's very written by the trade and very decompressed. But I've always appreciated the mood and atmosphere of this era. I mean, again, it's a blue-collar feel to Daredevil. An interesting spot for Matt. At one point, he's a cook. You see some really street-level vigilante stuff. And you get this neighborhood building around, a lot of supporting characters. And while I don't care for most of Romita Jr.'s modern work, he was superb in this era. He fit the mood, the era, the character, and the writer. These two go together like peanut butter and jelly. And this is a character that is a product of that time. Typhoid Mary really does reflect what this team was doing with the mood and atmosphere of the book. You have Typhoid Mary coming in, killing some drug dealers in a safe house, and burns the drugs and the money. She's not there to profit, and she's not there to make the world a better place. The fact is, she gets off on the gore. She gets off on the scum. You want to set up a scary villain? Five pages in, she dominates a thug, she kills drug dealers, and has sex in a burning room saying, let the dead watch. If I'm a fish, the hook is in my mouth. I'm heading for the surface. Now, as for Daredevil, you know, the guy who we talk about on this show, the main character of the book, he shows up and he looks glorious. We have this two-page spread, and Daredevil kind of outlines either side of this spread, kind of framing it in by being acrobatic, looking badass, to be completely honest with you. And you know, I gotta say, it is great to see Ramita Jr.'s line work at its moderate best, but I think the colors work here because it's Daredevil in all his red glory set against white. To give Rabina more praise for this era, he used the shadows expertly. And he also used squared features in in, in precise moderation. It's something he's gone overboard with today, especially in Superman. But at this point, it looks sleek, but looked very squared and very stoic. So it ended up being just the right amount of moderation and curves versus squared out joints. Now everything is square for Ramita. What always struck me about Ramita's Daredevil is that Daredevil's acrobatics didn't feel as weightless as they had in the past. You know I love Gene Colan, but when he did the acrobatics, not only it was gorgeous, I don't want to take that away... But it felt like Daredevil was lighter than air, which gave a swashbuckling feel to it. This is a grounded street-level hero. And Ramita makes him have enough weight to make you think he might plummet to the ground at any moment. So there's a bit of an implied consequence to Daredevil not getting a landing right or something like that. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it makes Daredevil feel like a Daredevil. I can't believe I just went there. And with this scene, we kind of have Daredevil taking a moment to snag this suicidal guy along the way. Now, to invoke the great Raul Julia, that's the day this guy's life was saved. That's the day everything changed and he had a new lease on life. For Daredevil, it's Tuesday. And it kind of continues that idea that I had in last episode where Daredevil doesn't look at any task as too small. The city's a part of him. He's a part of it. Everybody's important. Every danger is real. So everybody deserves to be rescued. And also to kind of back up some of the discussion from last week, Daredevil's en route. He's always obligated. Nothing is trivial, and day to day he's making this big difference, but it's not going out of his way to do this. It does take away from the fact that he is obligated. He's always going somewhere, either as Matt Murdock, as Daredevil, what have you. Matt has very few moments of peace where he can just sit back and read a book. And for those that want to correct me, let's point out there are books that are in Braille, and Matt doesn't even need Braille. He can run his fingers along the print. You get the point. He doesn't have any leisure time, because he's always trying to save the world. But what the world looks like, whether it's at a Hell's Kitchen level or the actual planet will differ depending on the day. Now to go to the other end of the spectrum with Matt. 
I know he wants to help Tyrone, and I do believe in my heart of hearts that Matt's intentions, his end goal, what he envisions for Tyrone is good. That it's sincere and he really wants the best for this kid, but what a dick. Matt is trying to apply Stick's tough love technique to Tyrone. And, uh, okay, I see why he would think that initially, but Matt needs to think this through. Let me point out that, A, Matt hated Stick's technique. I mean, yeah, he appreciated the results at the end of it, but it was not a cakewalk for him. It was a pain in Matt's ass. Stick pushed Matt and kept pushing him and still pushes him whenever he meets with Stick. There weren't very many warm, fuzzy moments with Stick, okay? Secondly, Tyrone may have been blinded in a similar fashion. He's a victim, toxic waste. I get the parallel there, but really, Matt was enhanced by his accident. Tyrone is not. Tyrone's already a victim, this poor kid who lost his sight because of this, and Matt's further victimizing him. Now, let me tell you a story to kind of frame what I'm about to say. When I was in seventh grade, my aunt convinced me that Godzilla was real, that they kept him in a pit, and that they actually used tunnels to feed him, and that if he ever got out, we had to run. Completely convinced me of this. And she plotted until a school night. She woke me up, said Godzilla's coming, and bear in mind, this is like the middle of the night. I'm asleep on a school night. Runs out to the car where there is a cooler already packed, blankets in the car. She She's going all out and she drives around the block saying we're going to go hide in these caves. And then eventually she says, okay, I'm messing with you. Let's go home and go to bed. Now, this scared the bejesus out of me and I have a good laugh about it today. I think it's funny and I'm glad to tell the story. At the time, though, it traumatized the crap out of me. Now, that's how it feels when Matt says, Tyrone, if you don't learn this, you're going to die. This is what Matt says to this kid. He says something terrifying. He doesn't necessarily mean it. Not literally, not as if, you know, Tyrone's just going to drop dead. What he's fearing is that this kid will not be able to cope, and this kid has only been blind for a short period of time. Matt's not seeing the effect he's having on this kid, and I don't mean that to be funny as a pun. He's not aware of the effect he's having on Tyrone. Just like my aunt was not aware of how bad she was scaring me with this whole Godzilla prank, it was all laughs to her, and for this, for Matt, it's all good intentions, but bad, bad output. I liked the Nascenti run. She played with some things in Matt that were both a little uncomfortable, but at the same time kind of took you down an interesting enough path that you wanted to follow. This is one of those instances. You don't always like Matt. You don't always root for Daredevil. She gave Daredevil a complexity that, you know, several writers are still doing with him today. But again, Matt with tough love, just not really thinking this one through. I'm sorry. Speaking of love, the Kingpin has some thoughts on love as we find him playing racquetball. Basically, Kingpin's theory is he's better without it. He's strong. Vanessa was holding him back. And for the story behind why Vanessa left Fisk, well, one day we're going to cover Daredevil Love and War and you'll understand fully. But long story short, Vanessa has left Fisk. He's a little bit more bitter especially towards Daredevil. Not to mention that he tried to crush Daredevil with a nearly foolproof plan, and Daredevil just kept on plugging away. That's gotta piss the big guy off. But while Kingpin feels he's better without it, he still knows that Daredevil is the reason that Vanessa left. And, you know, if he's not gonna have Vanessa, Matt is certainly not gonna have Karen. But realistically, Fisk can't get past the fact that Matt is the reason Vanessa left. Matt is behind this. Matt and Daredevil, and he knows who's who. He knows Matt Murdock is Daredevil now. Now, there's gonna be a discussion a little bit to expand upon Upon that thought. But on the surface, there's a story that will come along later called Underboss from My- Brian Michael Bendis. And that's where a young criminal learns that everybody knows that Matt is Daredevil and that Kingpin actually knows. And nobody has killed this guy. 
and nobody's done anything to kill this guy. Kingpin has had this knowledge for decades, and, you know, he keeps wanting to do these overly complex plans, not actually witness him dying like he's Dr. Evil. And by the time that story goes, you may find yourself agreeing with this guy. I mean, when you think about it through, the only reason Kingpin doesn't kill Daredevil is because the story would be ruined then. We wouldn't have an ongoing series. Kingpin could easily have Daredevil turned into sidewalk pudding. Now, there is a point that's made here that Nascenti actually kind of tries to fill in that gap and, and show you some of the logic. Because Typhoid is going through and tearing up some of Kingpin's own casinos, things like that. Kingpin's assistant says, we usually rely on people like Daredevil to get rid of people like her, but no superheroes are going after her. So there actually is a bit of a reliant relationship. Kind of a coexistence, a little bit of a biosphere, if you will. If Daredevil stops some of the small level operations because, hey, it's affecting Hell's Kitchen, well, the Kingpin prospers. So there's a beneficial idea, along with the whole concept that the criminal element is the reason that somebody like Daredevil continues to exist. So keeping Daredevil alive helps take care of some of the riffraff that affects Kingpins because Daredevil's smart enough to know he can't touch Kingpin without proof. And by extension, Kingpin also knows that killing Daredevil means martyring Daredevil, bringing up an uprising. And with Daredevil being worn down or ruined, he's a lot more dangerous and a lot more liable to make mistakes. Mistakes that benefit Fisk and ruin Daredevil even further. Still, it's hard to deny the logic of just taking a gun to Daredevil's head and getting it over with. And in other news, Typhoid Mary's having her little boyfriend Rip put dead bodies out on the street in garbage bags. And the sad thing is nobody will notice because of the smell of the garbage. Do you get how putrid this city is right now? I looked up some of the garbage strikes in New York in the past. There was one in December 1981. And, you know, it was bad. It, windstorm blew trash everywhere, but it was a short-lived one. But it still looked pretty bad. In 1961, there was a garbage strike that lasted nine days. Simply nine days. And when you see pictures, it looks like this post-apocalyptic New York. So imagine several weeks of the garbage strike. I mean, the city has to be eye-watering, gag-worthy at this point. That's the influence of somebody like Wilson Fisk. Anyway, through all this trash, Matt and Karen are walking and talking. Well, Karen's talking. Matt's not paying attention. He's still obsessed with his tough love with Tyrone. And Karen mentions, hey, no superheroes are going after Typhoid Mary. Her reign of terror on the underworld continues. And there's kind of a reason for that. You're not going to see the Fantastic Four go after a low-level vigilante like Typhoid Mary unless they happen upon it. Likewise, you know, the Avengers are busy fighting a Tuma or something like that. Spider-Man, maybe. Maybe Spider-Man. But of course, that relies on him not being attacked by the Vulture or the Shocker or something like that that week. This clearly defines Daredevil's domain as a hero. Somebody like Typhoid Mary is perfectly up Daredevil's alley, the street level. The people that'll be covered on this show once we get to some of the other characters. Power Man and Iron Fist, if you pay him enough. Cloak and Dagger, maybe. Typhoid is killing off the drug dealers and Cloak and Dagger may be a little bit okay with that. But this kind of ends up being a bit of a chorus for Nis Senti's Daredevil. This is the world he inhabits, and she clearly states it again. Kind of like a mission statement. And Karen also adds something that's kind of mind-blowing, that Matt Murdock would find a way to make sure that somebody like this gets a fair trial, that their rights are not violated. And I like that idea that Matt would be that person. He would make sure that everything is weighed and measured carefully. The law is all about balance. That's why its symbol is the scales. Everything should be just and fair. And Matt would make sure that is taken care of. And, you know, there are storylines where Matt does that. It does tell us that, you know, for the most part, Nascenti does have the character pretty well pegged. But at the same time, you have something like Matt completely missing this conversation because he's obsessed with Tyrone's case. And for Matt, Ty he decides he's going to make Tyrone sink or swim. Of course. Of course he's going to make Tyrone sink or swim. And why is that? Why is it so obvious? Matt was a victim. Matt was bullied. He was blinded by an accident. And he turned that into a weapon for good. He's projecting on Tyrone. 
And what he's seeing there is failure because Tyrone isn't coming up the way he did. But at the same time, let's be honest, Matt cheated. He cheated. It's not fair to put this on Tyrone because Matt had radioactive material giving him an edge. He didn't have a victory. He didn't suddenly learn something that no other person with his ability could. Matt coming through the training was not a victory. Matt coming through the training was obvious. Matt was designed for that. That's how his senses work. And Stick directed that. And through what he's doing, he's becoming this combination of Jack Murdoch and Stick without the perspective. He's bringing all of their baggage into this, all of the negativity, all of the things they forced him to do without the perspective of age, being a parent, being a, you know, a kung fu master. Matt's projecting this and he's trying to make it happen again and he doesn't clue in that it wasn't just him. It was his abilities that helped him really thrive under Stick's training. That little extra bit that the radioactive material gave him. As much as I love the character of Daredevil and, and Matt Murdock being one and the same, Tyrone even as, as really begs Matt to stop at one point. Stop training me. Just let me be blind. This is, even though Matt believes it to be good intention, this is not about Tyrone. I'm certainly not going to give Matt a free pass on this. Matt's being a douche. He's being a douche for no reason other than he feels he should. His perspective is way out of whack, and his intentions, although somewhere in there are good, his intentions don't weigh and measure the facts. Which is interesting because that means it goes directly into conflict with what Karen is saying, that Daredevil would defend the criminal rights, that Daredevil, Matt, would weigh the evidence. And it's kind of that human element. I'm not giving him a free pass, but it's that human element of Daredevil that he is a damaged and flawed character and he doesn't always do things right. Matt probably needs to talk with a shrink about this. Speaking of shrinks, coming back to Typhoid Mary. In a Daredevil Deadpool annual from 1997, Joe Kelly wrote this story where we learn that Mary was the prostitute that was knocked out of the window by Matt in Man Without Fear. Now, not only is that a little bit of a relief to Daredevil that she lived and it somehow became canon, but it also means that this dissociative personality disorder kicked in by thinking no man will ever hurt me again. And I appreciate Kelly trying to tie Typhoid Mary's origin into Daredevil, trying to make it piece of the whole, but it's debunked here in her first appearance. Kingpin is looking into Mary and Typhoid, and it's from her youth. There's a lot of history of being treated for this. That associative personality disorder is something she's lived with since childhood. So I have to debunk the Deadpool annual, as cute as it may be. And I love the yin and yang represented in the half-painted face. That Mary is sweet and good, Typhoid is evil and violent. And really, this is a character that is tragic, that really deserves sympathy to some extent and deserves some sort of help. But Kingpin doesn't care. He's going to use her as a weapon, just as if she was a gun or a knife or a sword. He's basically ready to use her as a weapon to hurt Daredevil. And so he makes it so she comes to him and she does arrive at Fisk Tower. She turns his guards into sleeping babies with just a thought, showing her low-level psionic ability. Early in their issue, she was using her telekinesis to spin a knife. And there's this great scene where Kingpin and Typhoid struggle for dominance. He hits her, he hits her hard, and she sets his desk on fire, and they're fighting to show who's the bigger badass. And they come to a point, a bit of a stalemate, where they agree to disagree. And the thing is, throughout the storyline that's to come, the power struggle is going to continue. Kingpin becomes very obsessed with her and possessive, kind of ending up having the effect on him that he wished for Daredevil, which, of course, does happen to Matt. I love the idea that he's offering her a million dollars to make Matt fall in love with her. So, for Kingpin, love is an item to be purchased and used as a weapon, just like a person. Does that tell you a lot about Fisk? And then, Mary, the other side of the coin. The thing is, we've seen Typhoid. We know what she can do. She's scary. She is really complex. She locks horns with the Kingpin, and we get that. We get a clear picture of typhoid by the end of this issue so we get 98 percent typhoid 
2% Mary. She doesn't appear until the final scene, and the issue abruptly ends, by the way. If you're reading it on Marvel Digital Unlimited, having read the physical copy, it is that abrupt. Done. It just stops. And the sad thing is, it didn't hit me until I was sitting down to do notes, but Mary, even though we see her for a moment, she's a pawn in all of this. Fisk is willing to use a person as a weapon, doesn't matter what the effect. He's willing to pay and use love, of all things, that emotion as a weaponized form of combat. Typhoid is willing to do what it takes. She gets turned on by manipulating, by being dominant, because she was a victim, if you believe Joe Kelly. And really, she is fine with seducing Matt. She wants to prove she can. Mary, on the other hand, even though we just see her, she's a pawn in all of this. She's a pawn of not only Fisk, but the other side of her personality. She's a victim of herself. They even talk about how Mary built up an acting career, Typhoid tore it down. She's going to be tormented her whole life with this. And now Typhoid has aimed her like a bullet at Matt's heart. And Matt is very drawn to her. And this storyline takes Matt down a path where he isn't exactly likable, as if this issue helped. He makes horrible mistakes. And this comes to a head with Matt attacked by a bunch of his old enemies and Typhoid herself, and left bleeding. He's just laying on the ground for several issues as Inferno, the crossover, starts. And then we get to Mephisto and Demons, and yeah, I I kept reading when I started doing this, the notes for this. It goes to some neat places. But it's, it's ultimately, it's a story of corruption, is the key. And this is probably the best piece of this run, Typhoid, because it does have that corruption all around. We have Mary spreading it because she's diseased, the fever. We have the trash really, really bringing the city down, a part of Kingpin's own corruption and his his ruination of New York. And, it, and when you say it out loud, it's very obvious, but it's great when you're actually reading it. And we have this obsession and detachment eating away at the city. Basically, we have Typhoid Mary being this patient zero to an infection of criminal corruption in New York. Kingpin's own biological weapon. Let Let me render my final verdict here. Typhoid Mary has staying power. She's around today. She's a comeback. She'll come back again. She's a recurring Daredevil villain, one of the better ones. And while I like this issue, it's only coming to the forefront because of irrelevance, because of the relevance of her first appearance. The art is on point. Fisk looks awesome when Ramita Jr. draws him. I mean, really, playing racquetball, he looks great. Ramita uses sharper angles and minimalism. Daredevil looks fantastic, but kind of takes a backseat in his own book, which is okay because Daredevil and New York are a part of each other. But we have Matt being too driven, too obsessed with Tyrone to the point of being unlikable, to the point you don't want Matt to be around. Now, having said that, as frustrated as I am with Matt, the environment that the story takes place in, the trash, New York being under corruption and being really smelly, that's phenomenal. That's some 80s action movie grit right there. New York feels oppressive, it's grimy, it's unpleasant as these characters all have dirt on their hands and it reflects in the city. Nobody's wearing a white coat on this one. The issue is actually very decent, but made better as part of the series of events to come. It's a moody piece of the 80s, dark and gritty, borderline noir daredevil, and I just love the mood of this run, and this is a great component to that. Now that does bring us to the end of this episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next time we look at another interpretation of Daredevil's origin with the season one graphic novel. Between now and then, be sure and visit the site 2TrueFreaks.com and look for the show, or you can use Daredevil podcast.com to reach it directly. But if you go to 2TrueFreaks.com, you get to see the other shows. If you're wanting to subscribe, you can get links for iTunes, the RSS link for a podcatcher right there, or just search me out on iTunes. And hey, you got thoughts on my thoughts? Email me at mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Be sure and like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast. Even though it says Dave does podcast, it is the home base for this show on Facebook. Of course, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Dave Weeder. Until next time, my friends, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
Dave's Daredevil podcast is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. It does not draw profit for the material discussed, nor does it generate any general revenue. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment, all rights reserved. All opinions are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. This show and the host Soul are both registered trademarks of Demonzacore of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Count evil father, he lost his king. Dream of Ghost Rider, when you hear his name. And devil fight for what is right.